Well, good morning. It's great to be here with you all again. Um, This morning we're going to be looking at a passage from the Gospel of Luke, right at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. We'll be reading chapter 4, verses 31 through 44. You have it in your handout there. But before we read, um, it'll be helpful to put this passage in context. So in chapter 3, Luke has recorded for us that Jesus came to John to be baptized, and that in his baptism, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in a visible way. In bodily form, like a dove, Luke says, and that a voice from heaven spoke these words, You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. After this, Luke recounts the genealogy of Jesus, but unlike other genealogies, he goes backwards. He begins with Jesus and goes all the way back to the very first man. And chapter 3 ends with these words, The son of Adam, the son of God. So in chapter 3, Luke is telling us who Jesus is. He's actually told us a good bit. He's told us that Jesus is the descendant of David, Abraham, Noah, and Adam. All major characters in the Old Testament with major promises attached to them. And he's told us that he's the son of God. Luke is telling us that Jesus is the promised Messiah. But knowing who somebody is doesn't necessarily mean that we understand them. And so in chapter 4, Luke is starting to tell us what Jesus came to do. And so he begins with an account of the temptation of Jesus and Jesus' victory over the tempter. And he's telling us that Jesus came to succeed where Adam failed, where we've all failed. And after Jesus' victory over the tempter, we read that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to the region of Galilee, and there he began to teach in the local synagogues, and people were talking about him. Luke says he was being glorified by all. But it's not until he gets to his own hometown, Nazareth, that uh, Jesus, we get Jesus' own description of what he came to do. We get it in, in the first sermon of Jesus that Luke records for us. And Jesus reads these words. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus gave his first sermon. I'm going to preach it for you really quick. He said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That was it. We can all appreciate a short, succinct sermon, right? (laughs) That's the backdrop for our passage this morning. And so what we're going to see is that Luke is going to show us Jesus working out those words, putting into action what he said in that sermon. So let's read together verses 31 through 44. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, And he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them 
and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and he and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have ready access to it this morning. And uh, we pray now that your spirit would be with us and uh, would help us to um, would open our ears to hear your word, open our hearts to understand and believe um, what you are calling us to. Uh, we pray for this in Jesus name. Amen. So about 10 to 15 years ago, actor Will Ferrell was at the height of his career. In 2003, he starred in uh, the film Elf, which to this day is a Christmas favorite of many. Uh, a year later, 2004, Anchorman came out, which was wildly successful, so much so that they ended up making a sequel in 2013. Uh, and in 2006, about 12 years ago, he starred in a film called Talladega Nights. Now, in this film, uh, Farrell plays the character Ricky Bobby, the number one NASCAR racer in the country who has lots of money, a trophy wife, uh, two kids, two sons, a best friend, Cal, who always helps him win on the racetrack. Uh, now, to be honest, it's been a long time since I've seen this movie, so I don't remember much of it, and I was also much younger when I did see it, so please don't take this as a recommendation. Um, but there was one scene of the movie that has long stood out to me, and if you've seen it, it's probably familiar to you. So Ricky Bobby, his wife, his sons, his best friend Cal, and his father-in-law are around the table, and they're eating, they're about to eat, and Ricky begins to say grace. And throughout his prayer, Ricky continually refers to Jesus as baby Jesus, until his wife interrupts him and says, uh, you know he grew up, right? And, he t and she tells him that it's disconcerting for him to be praying to a baby. But Ricky responds by saying, well, I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying grace. Whenever you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. Uh, <laughs> to which his wife responds, well, you know what I want? I, I want you to do this grace good so that God will help us win tomorrow. So Ricky starts to pray again, and he continues to pray to baby Jesus, and this time his father-in-law interjects and says, he was a man, he had a beard. <laughs> and, and Ricky says, well, look, I like the baby version best, do you hear me? And now comes my favorite part. So at this point, his best friend Cal gets involved and says, well, I like to picture Jesus uh, in a tuxedo t-shirt, because it says, I, I, I like to be formal, but I'm here to party too. <laughs> Because I like to party, so I want my Jesus to party too. Then one of Ricky's sons jumps in and says, well, I like to picture Jesus as a samurai, uh, or excuse me, a ninja fighting off evil samurai. And Cal, keeping the train rolling, says, I like to think of Jesus uh, with like giant eagle's wings and singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with like an angel band, and I'm in the front row, hammered drunk. Ricky's wife then says, okay, I'd like the prayer to be finished. So Ricky closes the prayer and continues to pray to baby Jesus. Now, this scene has long stood out to me, um, one, because it's, it's funny, uh, but two, because in its own comical way, it, it reveals something that I think is actually true about all of our hearts. Uh, and you can hear it throughout the dialogue, from Ricky to his wife to his son. But we probably see it best in Cal's words when he says, well, I like to party, so I want my Jesus to party too. You see, all of us want a Jesus that is in our image. We want Jesus to be who we want Jesus to be. We want Jesus to do what we want him to do. We want him to meet our needs, to serve our agenda. We maybe have a certain version of Jesus that we like best. 
We all struggle with this at various times and in various ways. Maybe we want a liberal Jesus. Maybe we want a conservative Jesus. Maybe we want a lax Jesus. Maybe we want an austere Jesus. Maybe we want a Jesus that upholds uh, certain standards of living or a certain way of dressing or a certain kind of music. A Jesus that meets our cultural norms. Maybe we want a white American Jesus. Or maybe we just like to party and we want our Jesus to party too. The struggle for all of us is that in some way or another, we want Jesus to help us build our kingdom. But Jesus didn't come to do that. That's the problem. Is He says in verse 43, he came to tell us about the kingdom of God. And that's a kingdom that is that is coming, but also Jesus wants to know a kingdom that has come in him. And Jesus himself tells us that this is good news. And so how should we respond to this good news? Well, if Jesus is the king of God's kingdom, then we must bow before him in worship. And if the kingdom of God will fill this earth, then we must serve his agenda. We must serve his kingdom purposes. It's not the other way around. But what kind of king is Jesus and what is his kingdom like? So in our passage this morning, Luke gives us a snapshot of the kingdom of God by telling us about a day of ministry for Jesus. We have three episodes in Jesus' day, and in these three episodes, we're going to see three things. We're going to see the authority of Jesus over the demonic, the authority of Jesus over disease, and the authority of Jesus over our desires. So let's take a look at these. First, his authority over the demonic. So Jesus began his day with a sermon in the synagogue, and the people of Capernaum were responding well. In fact, Luke says they were astonished at his teaching because it possessed authority. But there was one man in the congregation that day who did not respond so kindly to Jesus' teaching. This man, we're told, had a spirit of an unclean demon. And when he heard Jesus' message, he responded with anger, and he cried out, identifying Jesus as the Holy One of God and asking, What have you to do with us? Have you come to destroy us? And Jesus then rebukes this demon, commanding its silence and its release of the man, to which the demon has no choice but to submit. And again, the people are amazed at the authority and power of Jesus' word. Now, there's a lot that we could say about this episode in Jesus' day. But first, I think we need to acknowledge the difficulty associated with the idea of even the existence of demons or of a devil, whom the Bible calls Satan. I mean, generally, modern people... Uh, in the West, tend to dismiss the idea of demonic beings and powers as imagination or myth. Um, in fact, this is kind of the stance of many modern people towards the supernatural in general. And yet, at the same time, there does seem to be uh, a fascination with demonic presence and activity. And I think we can see this when we look at the amount of horror movies that depict their activity that are made and, and continually made because they're watched. Now, in American Christianity, we, we don't talk very much about the presence and activity of the demonic. But for our brothers and sisters in other regions of the world, the existence of these things is not in question. And when they read passages like this, it may, it may trip us up, but they read it without pause and actually read it with great hope and joy. Now, my goal this morning is not to convince you of the existence of demons, and that's not actually the point of the passage before us. And so I would just say this. Don't let the presence of demons in the passage keep you from seeing its point. And also, don't let seeing the point of the passage overshadow the fact that the Bible does attest to the existence of these. Scripture is both theological and historical. And to pin these against each other is actually to impose a false dichotomy on the text. 
And so I would just ask you to put your skepticism on hold this morning in order to hear the historical theological truth that this passage is presenting to us and then to weigh its claims and consider your response. Luke is showing us that though the people of Capernaum are astonished by Jesus' authority, they aren't quite sure of who he is yet and what he's come to do. But the demons are fully aware of Jesus' identity, the Holy One of God. And though Jesus does not directly answer their questions, his, the demons' questions in this passage, as we continue in Luke, the answer to those questions becomes very clear. What have you to do with us, Jesus? Nothing. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan have nothing in common. Are you here to destroy us, Jesus? Yes. Yes, he is. So a few more observations about this episode, and that is first, uh, we may wonder why Jesus commands the demons to be silent whenever they're revealing his identity. And there's two likely answers. Uh, first, the people around him still don't have a clear uh, picture of who Jesus is, is, of who Jesus is, and demons are not the ones that Jesus needs to, to tell them, because then he may be associated with them. I'm sure many of us could think of a group uh, that we would not want recognition and support from to avoid being associated with them, right? And then secondly, um, even if people were to accept Jesus' identity as the Holy One of God, the Christ, the Son of God, as we see these titles in this passage, they still have their own ideas about who that is and who that should be, much like the characters in Talladega Nights have their own ideas of who Jesus should be. The second thing is, we might think that the Bible talks about demons all the time, but that's actually not true. It actually doesn't speak about demons very much at all. Yet when we turn to the Gospels, we do see them. And why is this? And the answer is simple. Because when your kingdom is under attack, you muster all your forces in defense. And Satan, having been resisted by Jesus in the wilderness, could feel his grip on this world begin to loosen. And so he's doing all he can to hang on. And Jesus comes in the power of the Spirit to establish his kingdom And the demons had no choice but to submit to his authority. Jesus is the Savior who walks into the kingdom of Satan and rescues his people. He is the king come to free us and bring us into his kingdom. So what does this mean for us? This teaches us that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan are diametrically opposed. And that to be in one means to not be in the other. And we also see the nature of the two kingdoms. The one is bondage, oppression, darkness. The other is freedom, gladness, and light. To be in the kingdom of Satan is to live under the authority of sin, and that is slavery. And sin's nature is destructive and its end is death. To be in the kingdom of God is to live under the authority of Jesus. And Jesus tells us that his yoke is easy. His burden is light. His commands are not burdensome. And so we need to remember this when we face temptation. And we need to recognize that if we have been freed by Jesus, then we are under his authority, not sins. We don't have to give in to sin. Do we at times? Yes, all of us. And thankfully, we have a gracious king who has completely forgiven us and is eager to reconcile with reconcile with us. And that's the kind of knowledge that we need in order to follow him. But finally, seeing the authority of Jesus over the demonic reminds us that in the end, it is the kingdom of God that will fill this earth. The kingdom of sin and Satan has had its time, but now God's king has come, and his victory over them has spelled their end. 
even now their authority over God's people has ended. And one day their presence and influence in this world will be gone. And this should give us great hope for ourselves, for our world, for our friends. There's no one whom Jesus cannot redeem. And so we don't have to live in fear of evil. We recognize it, we acknowledge it, but we face it with courage, knowing where the true authority over this world lies. We can, with courage, enter into the dark places in this world with hope and bring the good news of the king who has freed us can free anyone. So Luke shows us the king who has faced the temptation of Satan and resisted him and now comes in the power of the Spirit to drive Satan out. Satan has no place in God's kingdom nor any power to stop its coming. The, de- the demons submit under compulsion. But will the, worship, will the awe and the wonder of the people lead to worship? And will it do the same for us? Well, that's not the only picture of Jesus' kingdom and authority that Luke shows us. So let's look at the second episode in Jesus' day and see his authority over disease. So Jesus, after his sermon in the synagogue, does what a lot of us do after church. He goes out for lunch. And he goes to Simon's, who is Peter, goes to Simon's house. And uh, while he's there, he's asked to heal Simon's mother-in-law, who has what Luke describes as a uh, high fever, a very severe fever. And so Jesus stands over here, over her, and like he rebuked the demon, he rebukes the fever, and it leaves her. And then as the day ends, everyone in the city starts bringing any and all who are diseased or oppressed, and Jesus continues his work of healing and delivering. A few things about this. Notice first that Luke tells us in verse 39 that after Simon's mother-in-law was healed, immediately she rose and began to serve them. You see, when Jesus heals, he restores completely. This is not like when you and I recover from the flu and it's a gradual process where over the next couple of days we're slowly regaining our strength, our appetite, our stamina for work. You know, Maybe we need a little extra rest, a little extra coffee over the next couple of days. No, when Jesus heals Simon's mother-in-law, she gets right up and starts serving him. I mean, you can just imagine her just jumping out of bed, landing on her feet, and if she's anything like my mother-in-law, going to make a delicious lunch, you know. Uh, And notice, too, that Luke makes it a point to show that uh, disease is different than demonic possession. We see this in verses 40 and 41 where he makes a distinction. Uh, Yet the reason for them is the same, and that is when our first parents sinned and rebelled against God, They handed this world and its inhabitants over to the kingdom of Satan. And therefore, demonic possession and disease are both the result of sin. And neither are what God intended for us. And Jesus has authority over both. In his kingdom, there is no oppression and there is no sickness. Now, we may read this, some of us, and we may wonder why we don't see Jesus healing people the same way today. And perhaps some of you in here today have been asking for healing for yourself or someone you love. And you're wondering why, why doesn't Jesus use his authority to do that right now? I don't know. Sometimes Jesus does choose to heal now and sometimes he doesn't. But I do know that he promises that one day when he returns and brings the fullness of his kingdom, he will fully heal us from all sickness and all brokenness. We will be fully restored. And I know that the reason that he's healing people in his time on earth, as Luke records for us, is that he is giving us a picture, a foretaste of life in his kingdom. And so when Jesus healed, 
he was demonstrating the power of his kingdom and authenticating himself as the king so that we would trust and follow him. One of my favorite moments in the Lord of the Rings trilogy comes in the third book, aptly titled The Return of the King. Aragorn, who is the true yet oft unrecognized heir to the throne of the great city of Gondor, is called into the city because some of his dear friends, Faramir, Eowyn, and Mary, are sick with a poison from the enemy, and they're growing steadily weaker despite the nurse's best efforts. And it seems hopeless that they will be healed. But then one of the nurses remembers a legend of Gondor that says, The hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known. And so Aragorn comes into the houses of healing, and he takes the leaves of a seemingly useless herb that grows in Gondor and crushes it and stirs it into a bowl of warm water. And the scent of the herb awakens Faramir from his fever, and he immediately affirms Aragorn as his king. And then Aragorn tends to Mary and Eowyn, who both awaken at his touch and his kiss. And all through the night, Aragorn heals the wounded of the city. And rumors fly throughout the city that the king of Gondor now walks again, bringing healing in his hands. What a picture of Jesus that is. Jesus is the true king who brings healing in his hands. He was showing us that while he was here on earth. He showed his authority He established the kingdom of God on earth, but his kingdom isn't yet here in full. It won't be until the return of the king. The book of Revelation Revelation tells us that when he does return and the great city of New Jerusalem descends to earth, that the river of the water of life will flow from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the city. And on either side of the river, the tree of life will yield its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree are for for the healing of the nations. And so if Jesus does not choose to heal now, he promises to heal in his kingdom. So, should we seek healing now? Absolutely. We were made to be whole and healthy, not diseased and deformed. Those are effects of sin uh, uh, entering the world. And we should push back on those effects, even as we proclaim the king who has come and who will come again. And the New Testament encourages us to pray for healing. In fact, in James, he tells us to go before our elders and to be anointed with oil and to ask for prayer. Nor does the Bible despise normal means of healing, such as going to the doctor, medicine, and surgery. Luke himself was a physician, and he did not give up his practice after becoming a Christian. In fact, he actually had a new purpose and a new hope for it, a new end to which it was pointing. And Jesus often uses those means to bring healing to our life, as well as Ordinary mundane means like exercising and getting enough sleep and eating healthy. And we see the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy in the first letter and addressing his stomach ailments and saying, stop drinking only water and drink a little wine. Very practical, right? While we seek healing now and we do ask for it, we cannot demand it. Because Jesus has his own purposes for healing and not healing now. And he doesn't always reveal those to us. But he has revealed his great purpose, and that is to bring us to himself, into his kingdom, and then to bring that kingdom to earth. Therefore, our greatest hope lies in the future. And that brings us to our third and final point, the third episode in Jesus' day, where we see his authority over our desires. You can see that I'm using day here as more of a 24-hour period, because this episode happens the next morning. Jesus leaves for some alone time, perhaps to pray, 
And the people seek him out, they find him, and they try to keep him from leaving their city. But he tells them that he has to go to other places to preach the news of the kingdom too. And so he does. But can you imagine yourself in the shoes of the people of Capernaum? I mean, think how nice it would have been to just keep Jesus around, right? Jesus, you are the best doctor. Like We would love to make you our resident physician. Jesus, you are a way better preacher than our normal guys, so can you stay and preach for us every week? Uh, Jesus, um, I see that you can heal and cast out demons and stuff, so could you, like, you know, say the word and fix all the issues with my house or make my livestock healthy or make my land more productive, maybe make my kids listen to me? Uh, Jesus, look, you have an unbelievable talent, and uh, we really think this is going to be good for Capernaum. Uh, we think this could bring in a lot of profit, so we'd like to set up a business with you. You can see all the reasons why people might be tempted to keep Jesus around for their own purposes. But Jesus wouldn't submit to those desires. He had authority over them too. They had misunderstood what he was doing because even the healings, even the deliverances had a greater purpose. It was not so that they could go on with their purposes. It was not so that they could go on with their agendas. It was not just to make their lives better so that they could keep on doing whatever they want. Jesus was proclaiming the kingdom of God and himself as God's king. And he was asking them to respond with their lives, worshiping him and following him. He was saying, yes, I have authority over the demons. Yes, I have authority over disease. But I'm not here to simply give you a nice life. I'm here to bring my kingdom. And if you're going to enter that kingdom, you have to follow me in repentance and faith. You will see that I have authority over you too. Your entire lives. And that's the same message that Jesus has for us today. And we too are tempted to want Jesus to accomplish our agendas, to bolster our purposes, to build our kingdoms. But Jesus does not submit to our desires. And instead, he asks us to submit to his kingdom purposes. So where does this leave us? How do we submit to Jesus the King? Well, first, we have to continue to understand who he is and what he's doing, what he began to do, what he's still doing. In order to do that, we have to go back to the source. We have to go back to our Bibles, read the story. And in fact, we should go back to the Gospels. I mean, when's the last time you read the Gospel account and saw the words, deeds, life of Jesus? Why not start with Luke? And this, we need to talk about this together because left to ourselves, we are far too tempted to impose our desires and our purposes onto Jesus. And so we need each other. We need our pastors. And as we do this, as we read and as we talk about these things together, we will see more clearly the purposes of Jesus in this world. And we'll see that he didn't come here to do things like put a certain political power or party in power or ensure that it's successful or make sure that our kids get into the right schools. Whatever happens in these areas is so that the good news of his kingdom may be proclaimed in word and deed. So our primary purpose in all our aims, business or pleasure, work or play, is to proclaim the king and his kingdom wherever we have opportunity. And yes, we proclaim it in words, but we have to proclaim it with our lives. How can we proclaim to be followers of a king who brings freedom to those who are enslaved and oppressed, justice to the poor, healing to the suffering, if we ourselves are not willing to do that. And yes, the deliverance and the healing are spiritual, but it's not just spiritual. 
Jesus brings holistic healing. Physical, mental, social, economic. So what this means is that Christians should be the first ones to defend and sacrifice on behalf of the poor. The first ones to correct sexual harassment in the workplace. The first ones to fight against racial injustice. The first ones to fight for the rest of the, the rights of the oppressed. And so on. Because these things don't exist in the kingdom of God. And that's what we proclaim. That's what we long for and that's what we're working for. That's where history is going. And so we do this out of gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. And we also do this with humility and repentance. I'm going to end by sharing a story that a friend of mine told me the other day. Uh, he was moving to a new neighborhood to be a part of a church plant. And one of his struggles in moving to this new neighborhood um, was that his son was going to have to leave his school, which was a good school, and move to a neighborhood where the school was not very good. But he did it, and one day his son came home, and he was talking to him about how his day was, and they were talking about his school, and his son told him that in his English class, they weren't really doing English. And he said, well, what do you mean? What, what are you doing? And his son said, well, we're doing ESL. And so my friend was angry, and he made an appointment with the principal, and he drives to the school, and he approaches him, and the principal responded apologetically and said, look, we just we don't have enough room for ESL, and so we have to use this classroom right now. And my friend replied, well, you need to do something about this, because I don't want my son suffering on behalf of others. And as soon as those words were out of his mouth, he was convicted. So he stepped outside, he repented, he came back and he apologized and he said, you know what, let's teach those kids ESL. See, my friend repented because he remembered that he has a father in heaven who was willing to give his son to suffer on behalf of others, even to die. And he has a king who was willing to lay down his own life A king who said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And a king who used that authority for the sake of others, setting his power aside and becoming weak. Because even though he had the authority to free from the demonic, the authority to heal from disease, there was still one thing that Satan had. Satan could look at us and say, Jesus, I see your authority, but have you forgotten that these people have sinned? And if the penalty of sin is death, if you're the Holy One of God, won't you destroy them too? But our king said, no, I'll bear their sin and I'll die instead. And he walked right into the kingdom, right into the heart of the kingdom of sin and Satan, as if he was the greatest sinner to ever live, because he was bearing our sins. And he faced his father's judgment all the way to death. You can imagine the demons rejoicing, thinking, the king is dead. How can the kingdom come now? If they could just hold on, if they could just hold Jesus under death, then they would have won. But they forgot that this king also said, I have authority to take it up again. And so he did. And he broke even the grip of death. And in his resurrection power, he can now heal us from our ultimate disease, the cancer of sin. And he can now deliver us from our ultimate enemy, judgment and death. And there is no power, no authority that can break us from his grasp, nor stop his kingdom from coming. And what a kingdom that will be. That's a king worth following. That's a king worth bowing before and worshiping. And that's a kingdom worth proclaiming and seeking. Let's pray. 
Jesus, we thank you for all that you have done for us. We thank you that you have secured your kingdom and that it will come. And we pray that you would give us the courage to follow you. We pray that you would uh, give us the clarity to see um, where our lives are proclaiming that kingdom and where they are not and where they need to change. And Jesus, we pray that that hope would um, just drive us to, uh, to, to fight for that kingdom. We pray this in your name. Amen.